Hey, I'm Holly from Massachusetts. I'm James from Salt Lake City. I'm Jason R. Wallace from America's Georgia in these United States. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. And I'm Julie Klausner, co-hosting this week. If you recognize that, uh, it's because it's been sampled by everybody from Public Enemy to Two Live Crew, The Beastie Boys, De La Soul, The Wu-Tang Clan, Naughty by Nature, Run DMC, Kanye West, and Jay-Z. That is a lot of artists my mother does not listen to. (laughs) And it's just the start of it. His name is Syl Johnson, and he has a simple secret. I use the uh, blues chords and put a funky groove to it. Instead of putting the balloon, I put That's why the hip hoppers like my stuff so much. And that's why I like you so much. It's, it's Bullseye. bullseye. <laughs> this week, I talked to the prolific Syl Johnson about turning down the record deal that ended up going to Al Green. And I sit down with Gillian Flynn, the author of Gone Girl. She writes about connivers, schemers, and would-be killers. But she kind of likes them. It would be hard for me to write and not get attached to my characters. I, you know, I don't necessarily want to road trip across the country with either of them or <laughs> have them watch my children or anything like that. But I really like them. I get them. Plus, Matt Berninger from the band The National remembers sitting in a golf cart on a driving range, being pelted with golf balls and taking solace in his headphones and the music of the Smiths. All that and more this week on Bullseye. Let's go. On Bullseye, of course, we're joined every week by culture critics recommending stuff that's worth our time. Julie, who have you got on the line? I've got Tasha Robinson and Scott Tobias of the AV Club. Tasha is the associate national editor, and Scott is the site's film editor. Tasha, Scott, how are you doing? Doing well, thank you. Tasha, you're suggesting that we check out Imagination Illustrated, the Jim Henson Journal. Karen Falk, who is the archives director at the Jim Henson Company, put together this book. Tell me, what kind of stuff is inside? Uh, It's pretty amazing. Um, It stretches from 1954 to roughly 1988. Jim Henson basically kept a a journal where he kept track of just uh, little line items uh, sort of specifying like milestones in his family life, milestones in his work life, ideas he had, places he went, things he did. And they kind of used that as a, a backbone for a scrapbook. The scrapbook is full of images and sketches and pictures and like notebook uh, bits, just all sorts of ideas from throughout his career. The thing that fascinates me most about it is it's full of, of dead ends, like full of things that he had ideas for and worked on and then didn't develop further or that went nowhere, like this nightclub that he had all of these designs for that would integrate sound with like strange light shows. Um, or the Dark Crystal fashion line, which was actually clothing designed with the materials that the Dark Crystal characters were made with. So there's, there's this is great picture of this woman in a, a sexy dress made out of the same material that the, the giant evil beetles in Dark Crystal were made out of. That sort of thing. <laughs> I feel like if that had come maybe five years earlier when nightclubs were still sort of things that people were doing and everybody was taking drugs as opposed to just a, you know, fraction of the population, those both would have sold marvelously. 
I I don't know why that particular idea didn't actually go anywhere. I mean, I, it was just something that he had uh, sort of a concept for. And there's tons of stuff like that in this book where he had a concept for a TV show and here are all of the sketches and some puppets for it. Um, and it never actually got picked up and went anywhere. Great. Thank you, Tasha. And Scott, you've got a recommendation for something that's coming out this week. And that is a new film adaptation of the Emily Bronte novel, Wuthering Heights. They've made a PBS series and several film versions of Wuthering Heights before. Um, what's going on with this adaptation? Well, th- this is not your your, your great-great-grandmother's Wuthering Heights. This is anti-masterpiece theater. It's uh, it's from Andrea Arnold, who's this uh, British director. She did a film called Fish Tank, and she specializes in drawing, you know, visual poetry from the hardships of everyday life. And with you know, she's and she sort of takes that sensibility to this book and kind of rebukes the sort of frilly literary adaptations that you're used to seeing. You know, it's not a costume piece. I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. And what will be his name? Heathcliff. It's a very fine film. It's a very challenging film. And, you know, it's it's something if if you're persnickety about your literary adaptations it's probably not for you but i've saw it over a year ago at the toronto film festival and it's really stayed with me tasha robinson recommends imagination illustrated the jim henson journal which comes out october 17th scott tobias recommends the new movie adaptation of wuthering heights which opens in limited release this week you can find more from scott and tasha at avclub.com you can also listen to the av club's podcast reasonable discussions for free in itunes It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. And I'm Julie Klausner. When I interviewed Syl Johnson, I said that uh, he didn't have any smash hits, and he got angry at me for saying that. I disagree with some of the comments you made. I didn't have any hits. Take Me to the River went top 20 pop, and come on, sack it to me, went number one R&B. But the truth is that none of them are the kind of iconic songs that you would recognize right away. He's sort of in the liminal space between being a legend of soul music and a footnote. But more legend than footnote lately. I know he's having a moment. I have friends, actually, Rob and Paloma, who are doing a documentary about him. And I know that a huge Grammy-nominated box set of his was released last year. Actually, when we first looked him up online, we found a few bios that said that he was dead. Oh. I spoke to him directly, and I can verify that he is very much alive, very much kicking, and in fact, still doing shows in Chicago, where he's from, and around the country. So, Jesse, you're about to talk to Syl Johnson, but before you do, how about we listen to some of his music? Yeah, one of the most interesting things about Syl's discography is how much it has been sampled. And this song is the leader of the pack, one of the most sampled songs in the history of hip-hop, Different Strokes. Shingle Lang or the Funky Broadway 
Syl Johnson, it is it is such a joy to have you on Bullseye. Thank you for coming on the show. I want to talk about your early life before you were even a recording artist. Mm-hmm. Um, how old were you when you moved from the South to Chicago? Uh, about I think about twelve years old. What this is? Uh, this would have been if you were if you were twelve. This would have been uh, l- late forties, beginning of the nineteen fifties, when you were going through your adolescence. Yeah, 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 yeah. What what kind of music did you like to listen to? Alan Wolf and Little Walter. And the almost jam. Get up in the morning and leave that dust my broom. I'm getting up soon in the morning. I believe I dust my broom. That was one of my favorites. And Muddy Waters. Muddy Waters, what was he singing? I think it was maybe 40 days. 40 nights. Six nights, baby. She loved this time. Oh, no, Jackie Wilson. Oh, look at that, look at that, look at that, look at that. Ooh, yeah. Well, you love me. Those are some of the songs I remember. Your singing at the very beginning of your career actually reminded me a lot of Jackie Wilson. Mm, yes. And later on, in the, up in the... In the mid to upper 60s, I got a chance to travel with him with my band. And uh, he was fascinating. He was an amazing mm-hmm. performer. I mean, the, yes. the passion of the right. man. Right, 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 right. I think that's where I got my little scream from on Saga Tim and Different Strokes. <laughs> Jackie Wilson. By the time you started recording in the late 1950s, early 1960s, uh-huh. straight blues music wasn't really selling a lot of records, you know? No. It, was, it was not the thing, and the, the sort of l- late 60s revival of blues was, was pretty far away. Mm-hmm. So, but you can still hear that you can still hear that rawness of Chicago blues in, in your vocals, even in those early 60s recordings when everybody else w- who was making soul music was trying to be kind of, you know, trying to be as sophisticated as possible. Right. Um, and I wonder if I, I wonder if that was, you know, if that was something you were thinking about, that, that you wanted to retain a little bit of that that grit. Uh, somewhat, but uh, I think it was just my style. But I wanted to hold on to the roots, you know. From uh, I mean, I, I put rhythm to the blues, and I, I, st- I studied a little music, and then I found out how different chord changes, like, you know. I took a song called Teardrops, and there, uh, I used the blues changes, but I kind of switched them around, and I used the relative minor. producing most of your records in the 60s as as well as being the vocalist, right? All of them. 
I want to play your song "Come On Saga to Me" that was um, uh, that you alluded to. Tell me a little bit about writing and recording this record. Okay, so there, there you go again. I used the uh, blues chords and I made the uh, the main chord a minor instead of just a regular triad, a major chord. And so <laughs> that's that was the difference, and put a funky groove to it. Instead of putting the balloon, I put it. That's why the hip hoppers like my stuff so much. You know, they're sampling me as we speak. It's Bullseye, I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Syl Johnson, the prolific, Grammy-nominated soul singer. A huge box set of his work was released last year called Complete Mythology. I want to play Is It Because I'm Black, which you recorded at the end of the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Wow, what a song being sampled by hundreds of people right now. Against my hollow bones that rocks my soul. Looking back over my false dreams that I once knew, wondering why my dreams never came true. Is it because I'm black? Somebody tell me what can I do? Oh Lord, oh something is holding me back. Uh-huh. Is it because I'm black? Yeah. In this world of no pity. This is a. I mean, it's it's an it's an absolutely beautiful tune. Well, thank you. This song didn't come out in, in 1972 when um, everyone was cutting, you know, so-called message records. It was frankly before everyone was doing that. Well, I would say, uh, uh, yeah, they cut uh, militant type songs, and uh, I. I is it because I'm black is like a mirror? Uh, is it because I'm black is like, you can say, is it because I was this or because they were Jews and, and Hitler was also mean to them? Or is it because I was, a, she's a female and she make, you make more? You know, that's the type of meaning to that song. It wasn't militant, so I escaped from trying to be a militant guy because at the time, I really played for um, the different races of people, especially white folks in Chicago. The song's very sad. It sounds sad. So I'm like, uh, I thought I was like an actor at the time with my vocals and my my interference to get my point across. 
something is holding me back uh-huh. I wonder Is it because I'm black? Oh, somebody tell me what can I do? Will I survive or will I die? You had you had, had an offer from Willie Mitchell to sign with High Records in the late sixties that didn't come through. Right. Tell me about that before we before we talk about the one that did. Oh boy. They made me a, a big offer. And I sort of like drug my feet on it. And when I wanted to accept it, I was coming from New Orleans. I came through, and he said, well, we made another deal at the time. And we signed a young guy by the name of Al Green. So he wouldn't make that same offer no more, and I passed it up. At the time, you had gone through with Twilight and Twinight Records, which was your label through most of the 60s. It seems like a a kind of extended period of real difficulty with a business partner who ended up getting in payola trouble and put a secretary in charge of the label. Right. Oh, you know about that, right? So when you did sign with uh, Willie Mitchell and High Records, it must have been a big decision. I mean, it's it's a big transition one way or the other. I went. I should have gone with the Jerry Wexler. He wanted me to come in and uh, record with Atlantic. I'm surprised to hear you say that. I've heard you say that you thought it was a mistake to sign with High. And, it was. And, don't tell me why. Well, I mean, look, their the focus was Al Green, man. Right. They couldn't focus on me, and uh, it was just that simple. At the time, I had a pretty big hit on Take Me to the River. Otherwise, I wouldn't have went on uh, American Bandstand and Soul Train and singing with Dick Clark and uh, Don Cornelius. It was a big hit. Well, let's take a listen to Take Me to the River by my guest, Syl Johnson. Okay. particular song, Willie Mitchell called me at Cunard International Hotel in London, England. He said, I wrote a song for you. I said, oh yeah? So I was a little reluctant. <laughs> okay. I said, okay. He said, yeah, it's a smash, man. And the uh, he said, I, I was coming in two weeks home. He said, well, I'm going to send it all over to your house. So we sent it over and my wife pulled it out and we listened to it. She, and she took a, a, a tablet, a, a calendar, and she wrote across the calendar. When first time she heard it, 
smash, total smash. You have a lot of music in your family as well. Um, yeah, that's right. Not not least of whom is your daughter Selena. When I when I had a music radio show, I used to play her records a lot. Thank you. When she started singing seriously, mm-hmm. did you want her to go into the music industry? No. Tell me why not. Ah, oh, man. A young girl got to go through the doorman, the, the security guard, the NR man. The head of the country, company, uh, I mean, you know, this is an abusive business. That's what I thought. And uh, she said, no, I'm going to sing. And right now she's amazing. Uh, she's doing an amazing job. I'm, uh, for this British company, I'm producing an old school Rebirth of Soul album on her. I can't reveal the songs, but oh, it's awesome. Well, so I, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on our show. It was really a pleasure to have you. Well, man, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Sil Johnson. A box set of his work was released last year. It's called Complete Mythology. It's available from the Numero Group. break, I'll talk to Gillian Flynn about how she creates fictional connivers, schemers, and would-be killers. It would be hard for me to write and not get attached to my characters. I, you know, I don't necessarily want to road trip across the country with either of them or <laughs> have them watch my children or anything like that, but I really like them. I get them. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. Bullseye is supported in part by Ask Metafilter, thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Mark your calendars for October 15th, Max Fun Day. We're going to have Google Hangouts and Ask Me Anythings and special bonus content. We're going to be giving food to needy families. It's going to be spectacular. If you're not already a donor to MaximumFun.org, I don't reasonably see a path for you through October 15th, where at the end of it, you are not a donor to MaximumFun.org, because it is going to be quite the hullabaloo. You can find more information at MaximumFun.org slash MaxFunDay. We'll see you October 15th. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. And I'm Julie Klausner. Matt Berninger is the lead singer of the band The National. They say that they chose The National as the name of the band because it doesn't mean anything, but I think that in part it reflects the tone of their music. How so? Well, it's a little bit distant, a little bit cool, and that's actually what their music is like. There's an element of big Bruce Springsteen-iness, but there's also kind of a cool dark pop feeling, like 
Joy Division or, or Nick Cave. I like the National as a band name. It sounds like a grocery store. <laughs> well, let's hear what their music sounds like. This is Blood Buzz Ohio from their most recent album, High Violet. Stand up straight at the foot of your love. I lift my shirt up. Stand up straight at the foot of your love. I lift my shirt up. I was carried to Ohio in a swarm of Matt grew up in Ohio, and when he was 15, like a lot of 15-year-olds, music was the most important thing in his life. But it was an older sister that introduced him to the bands that became the most important to him. She was giving me records, Violent Femmes and R.E.M. and early U2 stuff. And one song stuck out to him in particular. The Boy with a Thorn in His Side by the Smiths from uh, The Queen is Dead. You might even say it was the song that changed his life. I remember listening to that record a lot. I, I had a lot of jobs, pizza delivery, video store. And the worst job I had was, was I worked at a country club um, and they, they had a uh, driving range. And my, one of my many tasks was to, to drive the cart around that picks up all the balls. And it's a caged-in golf cart. They had like a Walkman with little foam earphone things. I would drive around in that cart listening to the Smiths. The boy with a thorn in his side Behind the hatred there lies A murderous desire Every time I listen to that record, I, I put myself right back there. For whatever reason, it was I feel myself driving around that golf cart while you know, members of the, of the country club are up there practicing. But the minute the guy comes out to pick up the balls, he's the target. The balls would be bouncing off the screen and off the cage. Don't believe me cut corners on when they built the cage. So I'd occasionally actually get hit with a golf ball. But at whatever, I had Johnny Marr on my side. The boy with the thorn in his side is, is just about this sort of dangerous, even, even possibly violent, young weirdo, you know, and I think I felt like that. So I remember just turning the, the Smiths up with this sort of defiance while I was being, you know, barraged. He was a total badass. I respected so much the guts that he had to deliver a song that way and to say the types of things he was saying. And, and they're very self-deprecating and, and self-mocking, but also they're full of attitude. Nothing, nothing sounded like that to me. Just the, the combination of unbelievable, catchy strangeness and, and just felt like it was the whole other side of the universe. But then again, it was so relatable, you know. It made you just feel connected to a much bigger world. Suddenly I felt you know, less alone in, in the world. That was a, a record that made me realize that, that rock music can be 
a big deal, to be significant. I had to have it, you know, it's like I, I, I needed that bodyguard or something, that person on my side or that thing on my side. And you guys might be the popular rich kids or whatever, but this music is mine. Matt Berninger is the frontman of the Brooklyn-based band The National. Their latest release is High Violet. You can find out what they're up to at AmericanMary.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Julie Klausner. And I'm Jesse Thorne. Julie, you're about to talk to an author I'm really excited to hear about. Her name's Gillian Flynn. And I'm just going to say that when Stephen King says that you're the real deal, you've got to be doing something right. Oh, absolutely. He's blurbed a couple of her books. Gillian Flynn writes these really popular thrillers. Her last book, Gone Girl, was sort of the summer read. It was a breakout bestseller. I nearly took it into the shower with me. It's so (laughs) addicting. And her career is completely exploding. A couple of her books are being optioned for film development. It's not at all a surprise. She writes really visually. And like I said, I mean, her prose is addictive. That's the thing. I mean, she had had success with her previous books, but she has this new book out called Gone Girl that is going basically completely insane. Can you tell me what it's about? Well, It's about a husband and wife, Nick and Amy. They're about to celebrate their five-year wedding anniversary, but they don't have a chance to do the whole anniversary thing. Nick gets called home from work. Amy's missing. The house is in shambles. You don't need to be a fan of Law & Order or watch Nancy Grace every night to guess that Nick is going to be the prime suspect when the police start looking for Amy. And that's sort of all I can say without ruining everything. Okay, but I do want to get into one more thing that I I have read about this book, which is that in addition to all of these exciting plot things that are going on, there's also a really interesting structure to it as well. Yes, there are alternating narrators in Nick's point of view and in Amy's point of view. And as we move along the story, we unravel the mystery of Amy's disappearance and the history of this unusual marriage. Well, I'm excited to hear your talk with Gillian. Gillian, it's a pleasure to have you here. Welcome to Bullseye. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to start by talking about how you came to writing crime fiction and thrillers. You were, for many years, a movie and TV critic for Entertainment Weekly, and you've described yourself as a voracious reader who always had plans to be an author. Um, How did it all come together? What kind of books did you read as a kid, and who were your role models growing up? You know, as a kid, I I read... Very widely. I read everything from – I went through a stage like every girl did where I was obsessed with the Little House on the Prairie series and tried to write pioneer books. My very first short story I wrote in third grade was uh, very grandly titled To the Outhouse <laughs> about, about a little pioneer girl who tries to make it uh, back from the outhouse uh, as she's surrounded by wolves and the uh, the wolves actually get her. So <laughs> that, was, that was my first foray into the darker side of fiction. Did you ever differentiate between thriller, suspense, mystery, or horror? I know that there's sort of a subtle difference between all of them, but growing up, did you have a preference for one or the other? Uh, You know, I grew up very much liking the very, very traditional sort of cozy mysteries. I really liked those sort of drawing room mysteries. 
where everyone was, you know, trapped on an English estate and behaved quite properly uh, after the murder. <laughs> uh, I always, I surprisingly, actually, those were what I was drawn to as a child. And I always liked puzzle mysteries and game mysteries. I remember, you know, very early on loving the Westing. The Westing. Yeah, <laughs> by Ellen Raskin. That, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, to this day, I I always say if I have a daughter, I'm going to name her Tabitha Ruth <laughs> after the <laughs> the little girl in that in that book. That had a, a big effect on me. I read that all the time and. And certainly that does have a a little bit of a, a play in, in Gone Girl, those little rhymes and, and word games that Amy likes to play. Yes. Is very Westing game. Yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. I always am curious about this, especially for someone who grew up as uh, a fan of, of things that were scary or maybe dark. Do you remember the first thing that scared you as a little kid that like really freaked you out? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I remember we had a – my dad was a film professor and – Loved movies and loved talking about movies and teaching his kids about movies and and treated me you know very very much as an adult not not in a bad way but in a you know I th- I think you're ready to handle this now we're going to sit down and, and here's why you should see this and watch Psycho really? <laughs> on a uh, one of those old top loading VCRs and I you know wow you know scared it's not you know it's not gory it's suspenseful um you know aside from the shower scene and uh, I just remember that. Blew my mind. I loved it. I was I just was, I was so obsessed with that movie, and I liked that idea of someone who looked very beautiful on the surface and really had some very dark things going underneath. And that certainly plays in a lot of my fiction. So your dad taught film classes, and as a result, you maybe watched scarier movies for kids your age than was typical. Um, did you later on come to learn something from? something like Psycho or Alien in terms of how to unfold the story? Definitely. I mean, I I really, I owe, I think, a debt as much to movies as I do to books as far as how I write. I, I was very much steeped in, in movies. I love movies. Um, that's what my dad and I to this day still talk about when we're on the phone. You know, what have you seen lately? What should we watch? And, you know, you, you learn a certain type of pacing. And I think my books are very visual. They're very, they're, they're very scene set. Uh, and that's because I, th- I don't plot them out very much like a book. I think I do plot them more uh, a movie. I, I, I visualize certain scenes very early on in, in the book writing process. Can you give me an example of how you plot that out? Like, um, like an outline or like a scene to scene? I mean, yeah, you know, you know, pl- <laughs> I guess uh, I shouldn't even use the word plot because that uh, that makes it sound much more uh, organized yeah. than what I actually do when I write. But I, I definitely always very early on uh, have certain you know almost set pieces that I know are going to be in the book. For instance, in in Gone Girl, and this is very much uh, indicative of of all the movies that I watched. In Gone Girl, I wanted to set the little town that they're in, you know, and I wanted it to be a a dead in town, a company town where the company is gone. And so that company was this giant mega mall, this huge giant shopping mall that's gone under. And so everyone in town has lost their jobs. And as soon as I plunked that shopping mall in the middle of town, I thought, <laughs> well, we got to go in the shop. We got to yeah. go in the abandoned shopping mall. <laughs> There's no way we can't go inside the abandoned shopping mall. And so, you know, early, very early on, I knew um, somehow we were going to end up, there was going to be a reason for us to go in there. And, and I will wholly admit that the that the reason they go in there is pretty much only because I wanted to go into the abandoned shopping mall. <laughs> it was a bit Dawn of the Dead. 
Exactly, exactly. And all those 80s apocalyptic movies, you know, um, a drama to strain, you know, that where they walk through that abandoned town after the, the virus has hit. I, I'm a big fan of abandoned places. It's Bullseye. I'm Julie Klausner. My guest is the best-selling author Gillian Flynn. She wrote the new psychological thriller Gone Girl, which is sort of a love story, definitely a mystery, absolutely a twisted crime novel. Let's talk about Gone Girl specifically. Can we start by describing each character as they appear at the beginning of the book? The, the reader's introduced to Nick in a chapter narrated by him and Amy by a series of diary entries she's written. Um, and in the process of describing the characters, the, the two main characters, I, I'm really curious to know if you like them well, yes, I'll, I'll describe them. Nick is uh, introduced to us uh, on the morning of his five-year wedding anniversary, and it becomes very clear that he's uh, in a very unhappy marriage and in, in a very unhappy place, and uh, not just with his marriage, but within life generally. He's very kind of weary of of life, uh, I think, in general. He's kind of bored and in a petulant sort of way. And, and Amy is revealed uh, through the diary entries, starting with, you know, the, the day they first met and moving toward uh, throughout their marriage uh, to a much more sinister place. And I really like them both. I mean, I, I think it's hard. It would be hard for me to write and not get attached to my characters. Yeah. I, I think any good writer has a real empathy, at least for their characters, if they don't, you know, I don't necessarily want to road trip across country with either of them or <laughs> have them watch my children or anything like that. But uh, I really like them. I get them. And I, you know, I think that's the key is, you know, any person that you know casually and you dislike, once you kind of know their life story, you realize why they act the way they do. And mm-hmm. it's hard not to to kind of have a, a fondness. Well, they're both out of work magazine writers. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a certain self-deprecation in that, you know, that's where you came from. And yeah, yeah. they both seem a bit narcissistic. Is that fair to say? <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, they're, I navel a, ga- they're navel gazers like all journalists are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And self-aware at the same time, but it doesn't yeah. make it better. It's like they know that and yet they continue to be that way. Yeah. Um, Nick takes a while to be upfront with the reader about who he is and his imperfections. And it takes an even longer time to discover what Amy is really like. Mm-hmm. Do you think... People or characters are more likable when they're being honest? Huh, that's an interesting question. I I don't know. I don't know necessarily that I think that personally, I, because I think that we all tell fibs about ourselves on day-to-day uh, interactions. We all present kind of a facade of who we really are, we wouldn't be able to to get through the day, you know, if, if we acted like who we are and what we really want to do deep down, uh, society wouldn't actually work. So, yeah. you know, that that's how uh, that's this begins at, at child rearing, where you teach a child not to have a tantrum in the middle of a restaurant, even <laughs> though they want to. And, and we move forward from there. And I'm a huge fan of the unreliable narrator. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've always loved a good unreliable narrator, mainly because I think it's very fun to have that sense of unease and not quite be able to put your finger on it and then realize as you move forward that you've kind of, as a reader, entrusted yourself to someone who is not worthy of your trust. And I think that puts you on a very, very delightfully (laughs) squirmy ground. 
after a break, more with Gillian Flynn. And I'll tell you why you're missing out if you're not watching Key and Peele, the show that made me laugh for three minutes and 30 seconds straight. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. MaximumFun.org is proud to support the San Francisco Comedy and Burrito Festival, a weekend of comedy and burritos, October 11th through 13th, featuring stand-up comedy and live tapings of Jordan Jesse Go and International Waters. More information and tickets are available at sfcomedyandburritofestival.com. Hey, it's Jesse. You probably already know from my promo earlier in the program that October 15th is our first ever Max Fun Day. Now, some of you may already be MaximumFun.org donors, and you're thinking Max Fun Day has no relevance to you. You could not be more wrong, because October 15th, Max Fun Day, is the day that you trick all of your friends, wait, trick, convince, all of your friends, real life and virtual, to become MaximumFun.org donors. You know they like the shows already. You know they're trying to skip out on giving us money. Make them pay. I don't know how you would make them pay. Maybe like uh, one of those water bucket at the top of a door jam things. <laughs> or maybe just use the hashtag MaxFunDay on Twitter or post about it on Facebook or something like that. We'll have lots of cool stuff for you, whether you're a new donor or an existing donor. So go to MaximumFun.org slash MaxFunDay and mark your calendar for October 15th. It's Bullseye. I'm Julie Klausner. My guest is Gillian Flynn, the author of the best-selling thriller Gone Girl. The book is a twisty, turny look at a marriage that looks normal from the outside but has some fun, psychopathic tendencies. So you've been interested in true crime stories for a while, and you must already be pretty familiar with police procedure. Um, I know in the acknowledgments you thanked a judge, a lieutenant, a detective, yeah. and a DA. Um, what kind of research did you do for this book? And at, at any point, did these people lose patience with you to make sure that you got all the accuracies down? Like, from my experience, I always am surprised when cops care as much as they do about yeah. cases like this. Like, um, your your character, Boney, the, the cop who, who knew all the details in and out and how she kept meeting Nick at that pancake place. Yeah. Um, wh- what was the process of researching this book like? You know, I I was very lucky because I had a cop get in touch with me on Facebook after he read Dark Places, <laughs> uh, who is from that area. And he you know, said basically, you know, thanks for getting those details right. And I said, <laughs> I rewarded him by quickly saying, hey, how, do you li- how would you like to help me get the next book right? <laughs> and uh, you know, I said, uh, I just have a few questions for you that turned into several hundred over the couple years I was writing Gone Girl. And I mean, thank goodness he was patient and great and always gave me just the right level of detail and, and helped me, you know, I could say, could this possibly happen? Like, well, you know, help me help me fill out how far out of range I was going. So, so like, could this possibly happen and does this usually happen? Exactly, which is a very good comparison because if you wrote exactly what happens, it'd be, you know, a very, very, very long book. <laughs> mm-hmm. If you put in all those details, you have to, you know, find shortcuts and ways to kind of compress things. And so it, it, he was a great sounding board for me to, 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 you know, if you're bending the rules, you want to know exactly how far you're bending them. When you published your debut novel, Sharp Objects, you wrote on the Powell's book blog something that 
I'm I'm going to read now. <laughs> uh, so this is a quote from from one of your blog posts on Powell's. I think women like to read about murderous mothers and lost little girls because it's our only mainstream outlet to even begin discussing female violence on a personal level. Female violence is a specific brand of ferocity. It's a much more fearsome thing to watch than two dudes clobbering each other. And the mental violence is positively gory. My question is, is there a feminism to female violence? Are your books in part a response to the endless CSI imagery of female corpse upon female rape victim. And is Amy as reprehensible as she turns out to be actually kind of a strong female role model? Uh, yeah, I get I I weary of a uh, woman as victim, even when she gets her revenge. Ultimately, uh, I feel like that's I've, I've read that story many, many times. And and what I'm much more interested in is the opposite of that is 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 woman as aggressor and and addressing that because I think that's very real and if you don't acknowledge that then women in fiction are constantly sort of helpmates or you know assistants or or yeah. these or or victims who who kind of turn things around in, instead of what they they often are and and to me that that's the much more interesting thing is because I think. I dislike the idea of women as being innately and naturally kind and nurturing and giving and motherly mm-hmm. and, and this sort of thing because I think it's hard to be a good person. You have Most people have to try to be a good person. And if you are consistently enforcing this message that women are naturally and innately uh, giving and caring and kind and it's very easy for us to do that, you're sort of robbing us of all that the hard work one does to be mm-hmm. a good person. So I like to explore uh, the dark side of women because I think that's much more much more true that we all have we all have dark sides we all have demons that we fight with and and I like to show that in in literature that's what interests me. I want to talk about Nancy Grace for a minute. Um, you have a character in the book named Ellen Abbott and. She's really a stand-in for that perpetually outraged advocate of female victims. But you get the sense that while she's in theory on the side of the female victim or the child victim, she really just wants blood. I mean, she's just a character that's sort of out for vengeance. Um, And Amy in the book sincerely says, I adore Ellen Abbott, which is (laughs) really not a ringing endorsement once you get to know Amy. Um, How does what Nick calls in the book the Ellen Abbott effect which is assuming that the husband is always guilty when the wife goes missing. How does that help women and how does it hurt women? Right. I mean, it's a very fine line. And as someone who who does read a lot of true crime and and uh, follows the certain cases, you know, I, I certainly don't want to sound hypocritical about it because I, I think we, we've been interested in true crime cases forever. You know, for, the Penny Press was founded on it and uh, murder ballads date back, you know, hundreds of years. So we've always been been fascinated by by murders and, and, and bad things that happen. And we've always used those stories to make sense of our lives in a way. Mm-hmm. And when a, when an actual case is not moving forward and but the interest by the public is still there, then yeah. it does turn into something uh, a little bit more troubling, which is, you know, that we demand a narrative for these stories, even when the narrative isn't entirely there and that people get ca- real people get cast in these roles that they don't necessarily deserve. We, You know, we don't know that just because someone reacts in a certain way to a tragedy or doesn't react in a certain way to a tragedy 
it doesn't necessarily mean anything. It's just how, how they're acting. I, you know, you see these people, oh, they're not grieving enough. Uh, they must be guilty. Or they're grieving too much. You know, it's too showy. They must be guilty. It's Bullseye. I'm Julie Klausner. My guest, Gillian Flynn, is the author of the new best-selling novel, Gone Girl. It's a pretty macabre book about family secrets, small-town life, and damaged psyches. I want to ask about the one of the passages I, I like best in the second half of the book is the passage you wrote about the persona of the cool girl and about assuming a persona based on others' desires. Um, your lead character, Amy, is a or was at one point a self-described cool girl. And Mm -hmm. I think that it speaks a lot to what Ariel Levy wrote about in her book, Female Chauvinist Pigs, and it extends to really all areas right now, including the conversation about Olivia Munn getting cast in The Daily Show. Um, There's a really poignant passage in the book when the cool girl is described. um, She's hot, smart, funny, Loves football, dirty jokes, stuffing her face while remaining a size two. And even though she's got these sort of masculine quality, masculine qualities, she's passive and understanding and never gets angry. Um, Amy actually says, men actually think this girl exists. Maybe they're fooled because so many women are willing to pretend to be this girl. Is this new or has the cool girl always existed uh, in different forms? You know, I think for uh, – past 20 years maybe uh the, since the 90s I, I felt like that's when i first started noticing that the 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 heroine in any movie uh, was pretty much necessarily kind of one of the guys but sort of gorgeous at the same time she didn't have many of her her own issues you know th- these were in movies in which you know the guy was going to get the girl so like there's something about mary yeah yeah absolutely one of one of the original iconic cool girls, and I love that movie. <laughs> um, but but certainly, exactly, you know, she she is Cameron Diaz. She looks like Cameron Diaz. She's uh, drinking beer at a ball game and drinks. Yeah, golf's every morning, uh, but still manages to toss the ship captain uh, an apple. As she's very kind um, and is you know super laid back and and all that sort of thing. And she's what every guy could want, uh, which is basically a guy who looks like Cameron Diaz. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, you know, to me, that was, you know, part of what I was playing with there is that women don't have that reverse. It's not like women sit around wishing for a man who will knit with them and, uh, you know, read Jane Austen and, and drink an apple teeny and, and how, what that, so what that disconnect is. Although um, you could argue that Amy kind of does get that at the end. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> she kind of gets the cool guy. <laughs> As remade by in her own image. Did you have an inspiration for Amy's parents? They're so specific. All the characters in the book are so knowable. Even the cat, Bleaker, I yeah. picture that dumb cat. Um, and I wonder if Amy, well, I don't want to give anything away, but... Um, did they come from did they come from a specific inspiration? I was kind of trying to reverse engineer Amy, which given how she ultimately is, uh, I tried to figure out where she came from. And and that's sort of an exercise that every writer does. I think I certainly when I'm trying to figure out a character, one of the first things I usually do is write a scene from the point of view of their third grade teacher or from the point of view of one of their parents or a friend as a you know childhood friend that's never ever going to be in the book. But it kind of you know, I, th- I think we're we're all products of of where we came from, and 
And that always helps me get to know people better. And, and I became more and more interested in her parents as I as I was kind of doing that, writing scenes from her childhood and, mm. and trying to figure out who these people were who had, who had written, you know, a childhood book series that was based loosely on their daughter and, and what that meant to them and what that meant to her as she was growing up. I wanted to ask you, speaking of reverse engineering something, the ending and if you started with it, um, there are certain books that we can enjoy without giving a amount of thought to the ending when you're reading um, or that we might be satisfied with a tidy wrapping up. And mysteries and thrillers are so bound up in people's expectations. A reader's review of a mystery on Amazon can just be, it was good. I love the ending or it was good. Yeah. I didn't like the ending. <laughs> um, there's a twist at the end of Gone Girl. There's a lot of twists in Gone Girl. Um and the ending is what it is. I really liked it without giving it away. Yeah. What were you thinking about when you constructed it or were leading to it? And how much stock do you put in readers' reactions versus your own judgment on what makes a good ending? I, I will tell you what. I, I did not know the ending when I started. And to me, that was the only ending that felt right. And it wasn't – I was not – it wasn't like I set out to do that ending and I was just going to stick with that ending no matter what. I debated a few other things and they all felt way too pat. Mm. And I am a I am a big believer in the ending of unease. I, <laughs> I like, you know, one of my favorite books is Rosemary's Baby, um, where, you know, you get to the end and it's like, ah, oh, Rosemary's Baby has entered the world. Hmm. <laughs> you know, and and that sort of sense of where you do wonder what happens next, and you do um, uh, have this feeling of being unsettled. Uh, and certainly, r- readers tend to love or hate the ending. I will certainly admit that, and I, I will also admit that I'm really surprised. Uh, not <laughs> that people dislike it, but that it's so so wildly. I I didn't think <laughs> I didn't think it would get a you know that that would be the what got the big reaction of, of the book, one of the big reactions. Well, Gillian, thank you so much for joining us today. The book is Gone Girl. I couldn't put it down. And uh, I really appreciate you being here on Bullseye. Thank you. That was so, so much fun. Thanks for having me. It's Bullseye. I'm Julie Klausner. And I'm Jesse Thorne. Each week on Bullseye, we close with a recommendation from our host, Jesse Thorne. Jesse? <laughs> Thank you, Julie. <laughs> the other day, someone emailed me a sketch from Key and Peele's second season, which just started on Comedy Central. Here's the setup. The lineups are being presented at the East-West College Bowl. It's a college football all-star game. They're doing that thing where the guys say their names in their colleges, and all of the players on both teams are played by the show's two stars, with absolute conviction. Let's meet the players from the East. Kyle Royal, Smoochie Wallace, University of Miami. Desquarius Green Jr., University of Notre Dame. Ibrahim Moises, University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. And with Jeff every whoosh sound effect, they get crazier, and somehow Key and Peel just get more committed. Hingle McCringleberry, Penn State University. Xmas Jackson Flaxen Waxen, California University of Pennsylvania. Osmer Taz Buckshank, Stanford University. 
Look, this is a simple list sketch. The premise is pretty much that some athletes have crazy names and some have names that are even crazier than the previous group. But the show's stars are such skilled sketch performers that every silly name and silly outfit and silly voice contrasts perfectly with an utterly grounded performance, which is what makes the silliness so hilarious. Seriously, I left for three and a half minutes straight. Torque. Lewis. Nevada State. Penitentiary. The player formerly known as Mouse Cop. University of Missouri, Columbia. But it's not always in the service of pure silliness. There's satire, too. One of the biggest hits of the first season of Key and Peele was Obama's Anger Translator. Both of the show's stars are mixed race, and the sketch perfectly picks apart the fine line the president walks every day. One of the voices you'll hear here is the president. One is the translator. Good evening, my fellow Americans. With me, as always, is my anger translator, Luther. Hi. Now, like many of you, I recently saw the video of my opponent addressing his donors. You probably wouldn't have liked the White House anyway. There's no elevators for your cars, man. They're going to have to take stairs or whatever. Let me make this clear. When you're president, you represent the entire country. You can't be president of half the country. Amen. 47% of the country called, and they said you get to be president of Jack. And it's harder to convey this part on radio, but there's also a secret ingredient in Key and Peele. As it was with MTV's The Human Giant, which had a brilliant run a couple of years ago, Key and Peele has a director at its core. Peter Atencio makes sure that the filmmaking choices always reinforce the writing and the performances. And that's kind of a new thing in sketch comedy. For years, putting sketch on TV was basically a matter of pointing a camera at a stage. This is a show that feels coherent, fast, and filmic. And in service of important things, too, big and small. Key and Peele have found a resonant frequency on their show. It's a program with a voice. It comes from two black guys with mixed-race backgrounds, one from Detroit, one from Manhattan, guys who've lived the politics of race in America, but who also love Mr. Show. Two guys with very specific outlooks. It's a distinct voice, but it communicates that voice to all of us and ties us together with that great tired together of people laughs. Because above all, it's hilarious. Key and Peel is sketch comedy done right. That's my outshot. That's it for Bullseye. The show's produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith, our editor Nick White, and our interns are Lindsay Pavles and Tom Pike. Our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our thanks to Paul Ruest at Argo Studio in New York and Mary Gaffney at WBEZ for engineering help. You can find this show and all past Bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.org. And in iTunes. I think that's about it, Julie. Thanks for helping us out the past couple weeks. It's been a blast. Thank you for having me. If you want to hear more from Julie, you can check out her great show, How Was Your Week?, which you can find in iTunes and on the web. And I'll see you next week, gang. Bye. Bullseye is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.